This is Multinew Media, Episode 2, for the week of March 2, 2015. Today's topic is HTML5 versus browser plugins. But first, our show will begin today with In the News. Chase Raz and co-host Chris Ayers will be discussing the current developments regarding net neutrality. Hi everybody, I'm Chase Raz and this is episode 2 of Multi New Media. Today we're going to be talking about HTML5 uh, as opposed to browser plugins. And if you were listening last week, you know we had a guest on the show and I mentioned something or, or doing something a little bit different. So this week we're going to have our first co-host. So Chris Ayers is with me today. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, let me give the floor to you for just a moment. Maybe you can do a uh, brief introduction, let folks know who you are. Um, I am a senior web developer. I've been pretty much programming since fifth grade. I've dabbled in everything computers. I've done sound and video editing. I've been a system and network admin. I've done network engineer positions where I'm configuring routers and firewalls and I've run web servers and uh, I spend a lot of my time doing database development or uh, C Sharp or C++ development and uh, currently I'm doing a lot of HTML and Angular JavaScript development. I, I guess I just could have done the intro for you and said you do everything. You're, you're, <laughs> you're definitely on the technical side. Um, we see, you know, on this show, multi new media. We're talking about new media and its impact on the on the on the world, and um, that can range anywhere from design to technical. And uh, definitely love to have you on uh, as as sort of a technical co-host. So before we get to HTML5 and plugins, we want to move into our first segment, which is in the news. Um, in the news today, so for everybody listening, we are recording on February 26th. This episode is for the week of March 2nd, but we're back here in February recording, and just today, uh, there was the FCC decision regarding net neutrality and whether to reclassify the Internet as a Title II telecommunications uh, entity or not, and um, uh, that's, that's been a, a little bit of a mess. Chris, have you been following that? Yes, and I'm very happy with the result. You're very happy with the result. I'm happy with the result, too. And, you know, after I heard the result, we, we kind of knew which way this was going to go. But after I heard, I found, even though I got sort of what I wanted out of this, I was still immensely angry. I was angry at the, uh, how can I be polite, I guess, sort of that conservative capitalist uh, rhetoric against. I'm not trying to be political there. You but, don't need to go that far. You can just say the dissenters. Yeah, the dissenters. Uh, why... Why would anybody dissent to an open and free, and we're talking economic terms, not financial terms, uh, why would anyone dissent against an open and free internet? Well, let's talk about what net neutrality is first. Absolutely. And, and let's kind of define it, because some people don't follow it like me and you do. So to help people understand, and then I'll, I'll have you walk us through it as well, uh, I have a couple notes I wanted to, to put in. So bottom line, the FCC was really pushed into classifying the internet as pretty much a public utility. Uh, just like telephone power, so on. Uh, this push was because modern ISPs want to select what types of content people engage with 
they want to extort, and that's my position on it, but they want to extort money from the services that people are actually using. So to get to what this means, uh, there's a very clear three-step list of what this means. The first thing is uh, these ISPs cannot block sites or services. They cannot arbitrarily choose to block anything content-wise. Uh, they cannot throttle content. They can on the consumer side. They can throttle the consumers and say you get this amount of data for at this speed and then yeah. they throttle you. But they can't throttle Netflix or Facebook. And no tolls, no fast lanes, no paper performance type of situation. So those are the three highlights here. Um, l- let's get your take on those issues. What what does this mean? Well, one of the things that, uh, that prompted this, I mean, it, a couple – months ago last year comcast was in negotiations with netflix and netflix had to pay for a certain amount of bandwidth to comcast and as the deadline approached for them to come to this agreement performance suffered across the board and there are graphs out there on the internet but as the time for negotiations approached netflix performance suffered dramatically and the day after or right as they came to an agreement performance spiked and suddenly it's super fast again so this is the thing that we're trying to fight against where some big company can strong arm somebody into saying oh you want your site to perform well you're launching your your new business and you want the website to load fast and quick and be accessible from everywhere well you're gonna have to pay us a little bit of extra money so that you can be in the fast lanes that's that's Uh, a slippery slope it's a very slippery slope and that's why when you look at the people who are for it and against it a lot of the people who are for net neutrality and not having any of these fast lanes or these tolls or these ability to block stuff are the people who are on the internet Microsoft, Google, Amazon, BitTorrent, Netflix the people who are pushing for the right to tax and to charge are the people who are providing the internet services, Comcast and Verizon. When we look at the companies for and against, so we have um, people who are for net neutrality, who are on our, on our side of this issue, and those are the Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, even Dropbox, right? These are the people who have made it. They, yeah. they rely on open access to their services from anybody from anywhere with any device. Absolutely, because we see there's a, there's a letter out there that over 150 tech companies came together and signed and sent and um, to the FCC. And a lot of these companies are these tech companies, Kickstarter, Level 3, Vonage. I mean, think about what this could do to Vonage. But the companies that are against net neutrality in its current form are companies like Comcast, Disney, Verizon. Um, IBM, Intel, and Juniper, they're uh, against it. And they're some device makers. And they make, like, routers. They also make, you know, network devices that help provide this infrastructure. And there's the key. Yes. They're making the products that, that would enable the charging for this type of um, uh, information inequality, they would enable the system. They would stand to make a lot of money. So we don't just have some of the big content owners who say, yeah, we want only our content represented because we have the money to pay for it. We don't want to compete on the open market. We also see the people who are manufacturing the technology that would enable that. D-Link and Aris um, being a, a modem manufacturer, but also companies who build the infrastructure. Yeah. So to go back a little bit, I, I still think a lot of people are not clear and, and honestly, I honestly think that people who are making a decision believe they're doing so with fact and uh, all of that, but most people are not, even if they're on our side of the debate. So, Well, we tried to raise awareness last year. I don't um, know if you remember when SOPA was, was SOPA, coming out. SOPA and PIPA. Right? Yeah, SOPA and PIPA, they were going through Congress 
as laws and a large portion of public websites i think facebook wikipedia uh, a large number of other sites blacked themselves out and took themselves down for a day saying this is what might happen if net neutrality fails if sopa and pippa and bills like this and rules like that pass you know if we're not paying money like some you know cnn or msnbc or something if we're not paying money for our access you know there might not be a wikipedia there not might not be open access to twitter or facebook and especially in third world countries or other countries around the world where you know that is the the only way they can have free speech but or think, share ideas do you think people understand when when we talk about title 2 right that the internet is now a title 2 classification of the fcc do you th- do you think that people really understand what that means no I so, mean, it's a 1930, you know... 1934. It's a bill from a century ago, almost. We don't understand what that means. You know, most people aren't going to look it up. Right. But I'll tell you what it means for us today, which uh-huh. is we built this country on an open infrastructure. You know, the roads help businesses spread. Telephone lines and, and, and telegraphs helped our communications network. Having these frameworks of utilities that people could build businesses and families and dreams on helped our country grow you know when the arpanet became the internet and became open and look at that massive explosion of stuff and if we lost that we would cripple ourselves this is just preserving that openness that we need to keep growing and absolutely so when we hear that the internet is now regulated by title two of the communications act of 1934 title two is slightly over 100 pages uh from 1934 but and here's the argument against it. People say, well, that's really outdated. Uh, but it has been updated, right? We had the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And, yeah. and think about this for the moment. The Communications Act of 1934, because it's been updated, because not only did we have this new bill, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, the 1934 bill now references the 1996 bill. But Title II is over 100 pages. Um, but we're also hearing a lot of people who are dissenting against net neutrality, uh, not in premise, they believe in net neutrality, but but they don't believe that Title II is the correct form. I honestly think they're just splitting hairs. What they're advocating for is Section um, Section 706 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. It's that old argument of why, why regulate? Why govern? Let us do it ourselves. And that has worked so well in so many industries, <laughs> Enron and the banking industry and the I knew housing you were being market. Facetious. Let's do it with the internet. What's the worst that could happen? But isn't that the argument? Okay, and this is why I was angry. I mentioned I was angry, and I want to come back and give service to that because I don't want people thinking I'm just some jerk about this topic. I was angry because I didn't understand the opposition side. How can rational, technological people like the the folks at IBM, uh, to pick one company, how can they be against this when some of their arguments are valid? But, of course, I think those arguments are being hijacked by people who don't have valid arguments. So if we were to go under Section 706 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996... Uh, If we were to do that, this isn't some 100-page document that details how to create, um, you know, telecommunications infrastructure for the public good. It's, I think, two paragraphs, somewhere under a page, about two paragraphs of, yeah, here's the high-level concept of what we want out of this. That's just no regulation. So 
you get this unique take, and AT&T is doing this, right? They're in this no-man's land. They claim to be pro-net neutrality, but they're doing everything against it to stop it. They're funding uh, anti-net neutrality groups. They're giving lip service to the winning side, the side today that says, yeah, we need to regulate this like a public utility. It's for the public good. But at the same time, they're fighting regulation at any cost. Well, I'm kind of frustrated with that and the fact that, you know, it's trying to play both sides. It's very duplicitous, and it just it, – it reeks of a company that doesn't care – well, I mean, that's pretty much the nature of a lot of companies. that don't care about their consumers or anything else. They just care about the bottom line, and you know, th- that's a whole other argument in itself. Who, who's, who's there doing that? Let's see, AT&T. Um, I think you know, Apple's taken no position. I can't. I, well, I can't they, see they more of a cowardly both sides of the law, or both sides of it too, because they have the content with the the music networks and uh, you know iTunes Music and and iBooks. They they want to be on the content provider side, like a lot of the other companies that are for net neutrality. But then again, they also make the devices and and sell the access through that a little bit. You know, like Broadcom and Cisco and IBM, and so so they're kind of straddling that. Do you think they have a thought in the back of their mind of who's going to buy a Mac if you know you can only access iBooks and iTunes? I don't know. So well, have you, a, you, you've heard the whole thing like if you try booking a ticket from a, a plane ticket from a Mac, they charge you more than if you book a plane ticket from a Windows machine because uh, you know, they I assume that you have a more expensive device that you can afford a more expensive ticket. <laughs> uh, has anybody actually been caught doing that? I. I that's it, it, it might be a rumor, but I, I've seemed to have remember reading multiple times that if you're looking for plane tickets on a Mac, like rent a VM for Windows or change your user string in your browser or hey, something. Listen, my, my graduate degree is in marketing. I would not be surprised if somebody out there is actively doing it. I mean, I've, I've seen some interesting stuff. Um, the last point on this, because we want to move on to our actual topic of the day, but what I've heard uh, multiple times, and this is directly from the FCC as well, as well as other sources, that the FCC is going to choose to forbear on the majority of the 100-page section of this Title II, meaning most of the document that everyone is saying, oh, it's too long, it's going to create too much complicated regulation and it will drive prices up. Most of it, the FCC is acknowledging, yeah, it doesn't pertain to the Internet. And they're basically going to forbear um, on all but a few sections, like 201. Section 201 is um, service and, um, and charges. Section 202, discrimination and preferences, which basically says you can't shut anyone off because you don't like them. Um, right. 222, customer privacy. 254, universal service, making sure it's universally available. Uh, 255, accessibility for those with disabilities. I mean, come on. With what the FCC has said, if you're fighting this thing, uh, am I being you know equally bad uh, as I'm claiming the other side is? Or is this just kind of a no-brainer of, yeah, the Internet really is a telecommunication service. It is a public utility in modern society. Let's treat it as such. No, I fully agree with that statement. I just, I think it's just, uh, it's all about the bottom line for for a lot of these companies. And if you look at what people are using it for, a lot of people just want to use it to publish content. Look at the explosion of of YouTube, of uh, Facebook posts, Twitter posts, um, Pinterest, Instagram, people sharing content that they create and and trying to enhance communications and not everybody who 
is spending time doing these things, has the money to afford to pay for, you know, ooh, I need this access fee. I need to be able to upload this. I need, I, I want someone to be able to download it and read it. It's just going to hinder the average person. That's a great point, and it is all about the bottom line. Multi-new is still advertisement-free, at least for the time being. But we do need to take a break. We'll be right back with HTML5 versus browser plugins. Welcome back. For our main segment today, we're talking about HTML5 uh, versus browser plugins. Uh, Chris, you want to introduce it or kind of give some thinking behind uh, behind the nature of this argument that we have in the web world? Well, I'd say it's pretty much been decided over the last few years, but if you're not on the edge of technology and you're used to doing things the way you've been doing them for five or ten years, you might be you know, always expecting to have to have your plug-in. And so let, let me lead you into a trap. Uh, it's been decided. Which way has it been decided? Plugins are pretty much going the way of the dodo. And here's the funny thing. I'm absolutely, um, you know, we were talking about this before the show, uh, how long both of us have been in the web and how long uh, you've been in programming and whatnot. And I agree and I have always agreed and have thought this for a very long time. But let's talk about what HTML5 is and uh, browser plugin. And also let's define it a little bit. So I think folks out there are going to be wondering, are you including are you including things like add-ins as well as plugin? Are we talking simply in-browser main window plugins? I'm talking in-browser main window plugins as opposed to extensions like Chrome and Firefox. Shows. Right. There, there are extensions, add-ins, um, so many different terms for them. Uh, right. So going back, when HTML1 and, and 2 and 3 and 4 were around uh, in all popularity. Wait, wait, wait. Don't forget 4.01 <laughs> and DHTML and XHTML. Those were created around the same time plugins were to address shortcomings with HTML. HTML was originally a text markup language. It didn't have interactivity there there was no real way to do interactive things and somebody decided we needed a blink tag that's that's a dark day in html did you, did you ever um, oh i have to ask did you marquees, ever use don't forget the marquees oh the mar I, i've used marquees and i've <laughs> used blink have you used blink or marquees and if so why not for anything serious and that was probably back in the mid to late 90s 
I used Blink in the mid '90s for um, a mock-up screen. Uh, Don't I, forget GeoCities. Oh yeah, Geo. Man, I was on Geo. Do you remember WBS? <laughs> WBS. Yeah, I ask everybody that. Everyone says no. Uh, WBS was one of the first successful online communities, and it was, was that the oh, that was the Wildcat bulletin board service. No, 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 web chat broadcasting system. Oh, Wild, I was Wildcat thinking was something Wildcat, different. which was originally a BBS that added uh, functionality like a Windows client, and then you could instead of FidoNet, you could also get on the internet through a BBS. You know, that's kind of neat. That my mind's going back to our previous conversation about net neutrality and why, uh, if content creators want to do something like that, why can't they go back to that old day like AOL? Like, yeah, we'll provide you content. Here's all this stuff we want you to have, and then here's yes, access let's to go the internet. Into the future, back to dial-up. No, no, not back to dial-up. But you, you got to admit, AOL had some perks with with uh, custom content, right? Never had AOL. Well, um, WBS was one of, was the first uh, web in browser based chat systems. And they give okay. away space for web pages and all that. So I always ask everyone. No one ever remembers it. I guess it's just me. But do we have to go all the way back to those days, uh, the early 90s, the, the web really getting commercial viability in 91, 92 at first? Do we have to go back to 92, 93, 94 to start answering these questions and talk about Netscape and the inclusion of JavaScript? Well, um, the commercial success of the Internet and the explosion of Internet companies is what led people to want more from the web that, that drove it beyond a phone book beyond uh, sharing papers and the society and the community and the culture we have nowadays where you can walk down any street or sit in any restaurant and see someone looking at their phone looking at the internet just didn't exist back then we didn't have the pervasiveness of Wi-Fi and cellular data uh, both of those things helped change the landscape, I think. But and, and plugins didn't get us there, did they? Well, plugins did get us there, and that was a huge concern when mobile phones started taking off. Going back to our definitions, because we never finished them, plugins <laughs> pretty much are a completely separate program. When the browser loads a web page that maybe has a plugin, maybe a, a square 400 pixels and you know across, it actually loads the plugin and says, "Hey, do me a favor, draw." and intercept all the clicks and stuff in that 400 pixel square. And the browser doesn't do anything like rendering or it, it just ignores that 400 pixel square. And the plugin handles everything in that square. Right. The drawing, the handling of clicks and all that. And this is what leads to problems. Plugins are usually the number one reason browsers crash. They're a huge reason for, for hacks and for you know security vulnerabilities because they're not updated as often as the browser is. Ooh, can we talk about ActiveX? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah th that's gone the way of the Dodo as well, Thankfully. pretty much. Uh, and um, Silverlight, too. Yeah, the difference between that and an extension is an extension doesn't just get handed a section of a page to draw. An extension becomes part of the browser. It, it can hook into like the network communications. It can hook into the page rendering. So you can do anything you want with an extension. You want a mail notifier? Ding. You want a chat bar? Ding. You want uh, a download manager? I mean, it just it's part of the browser. Do you remember when Netscape, um, let's see, what is it, Netscape Communicator and some of their later versions, they were so bloated with features because Netscape was this, the company that invented JavaScript. Yeah. And they said, we want to, you know, we want to go beyond HTML. We need to do more. And I don't know. Is it safe to say that JavaScript was an early plugin? Well, they cashed in on Java 
by naming their language JavaScript. Right. It was really one Java of the four was letters ECMA at that time, and they came up with this ECMA script. Right. And they they branded it JavaScript. Um, but it. But that's not a plugin because it's it has its own it rendering was, engine in the browser, right? Right. It was built into the browser, and uh, it's its own language. But um, when everyone else started adopting JavaScript, that's when you know the combination of HTML and JavaScript started doing a lot of stuff, but it, it couldn't do everything. And, and those features really didn't come around till HTML5. Is is that inclusion though of JavaScript and uh, ECMA script? Is that what led? You know, Microsoft didn't want to use JavaScript at first. They weren't they in had JScript. They had yeah, their they had own J-script. variant so that they could try to control it. But is that what led to plugins like ActiveX, or is that a completely different issue? There were limitations in what JavaScript and HTML could do, and so they had to go farther. So that was so, more in competition to uh, Java being embedded into a browser. JavaScript no. and HTML couldn't do what they wanted to do. ActiveX let them do full interactive movies and, and, right. and, yeah, and that's, buttons. That's what I mean, it, because Java was the other alternative back then, right? Because it could right. run I- ideally on any platform. And Java had that same advantage. It was a, you know, Java and ActiveX essentially did the same thing for the browser, just like Flash and Shockwave. It, it gave full interactivity. It gave full motion video if needed. It let you do network things in the background. They were like chat programs you could you know, it could hook into the web browser and the uh, webcam and do voice chat. And st- it, it, it just opened a world of possibilities. So for and any young folk out there, let's remind them, uh, Netscape came out with JavaScript. Microsoft responded with VBScript, trying to put Visual Basic, uh, a version of that, in the browser. And ActiveX, as Chris is saying, was really more of um, how do we get more extensibility into this thing because the browser can't do it. But, but nowadays... The, the, the landscape is different. Um, I, I'm sure you remember late 90s, early 2000s, they had the HTML where they were trying to do 3D through oh, a browser. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I, you know, I forgot about the HTML. I was too busy right. you know, focusing on, on XML and whether that was going to take over the language, which thankfully it did not in the long run. Well, it kind of uh, it helped on the back end. It did it, help. It helped on the back end. JavaScript and stuff. I'll so agree with HTML, that 100% would get models like with XML you know it it would get coordinate systems and it would use a browser plugin to display in 3D nowadays those type of features are built in as optional parts of HTML like HTML5 we have WebGL we have uh, HTML Canvas so both of those allow you to draw right on the web page like there are full 3D engines like people running Doom all through just JavaScript and HTML and CSS. And that's really important. I think that that tier of technologies that you just talked about, when we mention HTML5 in the industry, we're not talking about just HTML5 and here's this new form of HTML and it has a few new tags. It's not like moving from 4 to 4.01. No. It's been completely re-envisioned. It's not, on, it's not based on Sigma anymore, SGML. And the other thing is we're not actually just talking about HTML at all. We're also talking about JavaScript as um, uh, a necessary part of some of these features and CSS. These three technologies, HTML, JavaScript, and CSS, they go together and we put them all in a container and call it HTML5 after you know that kind of leading language which formats the page. And CSS3 brought also, in addition to a bunch of other behind-the-scenes stuff, animations. So they have CSS transitions. So 
that using Canvas as well. So yeah, I've been playing with those. Those are really nice, and they're surprisingly easy to do. They're built into a framework called Bootstrap and some of the other frameworks as well. When oh, you hit a modal, oh come and, on, they're uh, easy to do by hand. Yeah, I, I, a dialog box opens. It just slides up from the bottom, or you're going to another page. It just slides to the side. Those are CSS transitions, which actually leads me into the next thing. Yeah, uh, web sockets. Web sockets were brought in as well with HTML5. And when we had plugins, people would write additional code to open extra communication channels. You know, that that ActiveX or that Java plugin might talk uh, to another server, not HTML, but might query and get data to populate that plugin or might 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 do a chart or a graph. Let's give a couple of examples. So you said chart or graph, but but maybe we want to create an in-browser chat experience, right? And yes. Somebody, something has to do the audio processing, and so um, we, we could potentially uh, move away from plugins. So just, just giving some examples there. That would be WebSockets or WebRTC. One of the things I do when I'm developing is there's an extension in my browser. It's called Live Reload. It uses WebSockets. So the piece of software you know I'm writing the code in tells my browser when I make a change. Like when I hit save, the browser knows because there's an open web socket in the background that I just saved a new style. And so it reloads the page automatically. Oh, wow. Hey, we need to talk about that. I'm still old school. I'm going back to the browser and hitting refresh. And let me tell you, 20 years of that will will really start to annoy you. You need at least two monitors. That's all I got to say. Oh, yeah, no. I You know, I, I... I don't understand. I see so many people these days just taking a little MacBook around and doing things like web development and coding, and I don't know how they do it. I mean, two monitor. I'm at two monitors right now, and I would love. I actually have a need for a third, a pure need, not a want situation. And I have three, and a nice um, desire for four. Yeah, I have three. I would love to get a four by four grid or, or a three by two grid um, when I'm using my MacBook or uh, you know a full screen. Windows laptop, I'll uh, I'll either Alt Tab back and forth between things, edit Alt Tab, edit Alt Tab, or on the Mac you can do like a four finger swipe and go between multiple spaces. But uh, in addition to WebSockets, there's the WebRTC, which is the real time communications protocol, which is what you were talking about, which would be voice chat or video chat. So uh, with with that WebRTC, so can let's say we had a little Java app and you could do you know, VoIP communications, right? We had video control and audio control and we could we could create some service and let you call each other on the on this network. Would we be able to eliminate a plugin there? If we wanted a web interface, could we actually eliminate a plugin at this point and use purely HTML five? Well, let's start with YouTube. YouTube got rid of their Flash plugin. They don't need it anymore. In fact they made their HTML five video plugin Is their primary yeah. plugin. And and I think that's perfectly fine. Support across the different browsers for HTML5 is is really, I mean, come on. the The original proposal was in 2003. The first draft, the first uh, version of the draft was 2011. Um, you know, this we have some of the basics there, but not everything's deployed. But continuing on that thought, I mean, that's just video out. What about a full? Uh, I mean, well, we we needed time, and we've kind of come to that point. WebRTC brings together a number of compression technologies and codecs that weren't publicly available. So when you send video or audio across the internet, uh, that stream has to be recorded with a certain bit stream or, you know, bit length, and then it has to be encoded down. Like if you tried to send 
the uncompressed video from a CD, it would take 600 megs or so. You know, that's the compressed version. The uncompressed version is much bigger. Same with like a DVD or, or a Blu-ray. The, the amount of data to send uncompressed is just too much to, to be able to watch it in real time. Right. So we use a codex to com- compress it down. And, and then there's uh, packets, you know, that can hold like a chunk of video and audio together. Now, in the past couple of years, we have some f- royalty-free open defined RFCs of audio codecs that can compress audio and 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 voice reasonably well with varying bandwidths so it'll work well on a cell phone it'll work well on a mainframe uh, it can compress it pretty fast and you can decompress it in a reasonable amount of time and and hear the voice properly and then we have a video codec you know, Google actually released it, that VP8 codec that they built into Chrome. That's been released as part of the WebM and WebRTC product uh, packages. So we now have video codecs. We have audio codecs that are just built into WebRTC that are available for the open Internet to use. So- and so we have more building blocks to build better and more feature-rich web applications without having to use Java from from Oracle or ActiveX from Microsoft or you know we can just build it on the open technologies that are already out there. Why if if I'm a Java developer other than the fact that I'm a Java developer and I'm and I'm not but if I were uh, or if I'm a developer of any one of these other things that uh, is enabled through plugins what's my what's my reason for holding out and not fully adopting HTML5 at this point? Enterprises. Enterprises are the number one just pure uh, legacy? Well, I mean I'm a C-sharp developer. I, I don't usually use my C-sharp development skills in a mom-and-pop shop. I, I won't use them to just do web development for somebody. I use them in companies that have either legacy systems or are wanting to do more development, and they have a number of C-sharp developers in-house who have been writing C-sharp code for a long time, and they want to continue to do that because they already have the skill set to do what they need to do, and they can just keep doing it. That sounds a little dangerously close, though, to saying that it's not that we just don't need plugins anymore and that we need to remove that model it seems like you may be saying we don't even need independent standalone applications for most organizations anymore and we really need to move some of this to the web using this um, set of technologies we have now well um, if you look at the way licensing and stuff going I don't know if you remember a few years ago uh, Linux tried to well Linux was adopted by a couple of different cities and there was a big push to try to from from different places to try to shift office to open office or LibreOffice or something right, open right. source and then that fork yeah to to uh, avoid the licensing fees um, nowadays how many small businesses don't buy office that just you know don't buy mail clients don't buy Domains, they just go to Google and do like a Google Apps hosting and use Google Docs for everything. So, does this create a service economy in the information world? Because, but you know, most people I know um, online, they're they're not necessarily doing that exact thing. It's not that they're going to Open Office. No one ever went to Open no. Office. They didn't go to Linux uh, no. in mass. They maybe jumped ship to Mac, which cost them more money. But really, they went to Google Docs. And what's um, Office three sixty five? What did they do? They put web enabled they pretty much put word and excel in the browser um i'm not saying enterprises need to just get rid of their web applications it's 
you know, you got to know your market, know your consumer. Uh, at my job, we're actually transitioning from the older web ASP.NET development, which mm-hmm. was very like server-based, click, load another page, click, load another page, to now we're doing Google Angular, where it's a, just pure HTML and JavaScript. That's all that gets loaded to the client. And all we're doing is setting up you know, we're using our C sharp to set up the, the the web API servers on the back end. So when you run the the program or the website on your phone or your computer, it just sends off little data queries to to get the data and then you know filter yeah. it or. Isn't that just AJAX? Or am I being way too? Am I simplifying AJAX it way is too the much? way in which JavaScript goes and gets data. Okay, so let's so we have the the website gets loaded. So HTML and JavaScript go out to the client. Yep. The client's running this in the browser. They request some type of information. Something needs to happen. So uh, a, so JavaScript makes an AJAX call to okay. a web service. It it sends the request to the web server with JSON, which is a mm-hmm. JavaScript object notation. It goes to the server. It understands what the request is. It goes in C Sharp, runs some code, requests stuff from a database, runs some more C Sharp code, and sends up a request in, in JSON you know, back to the JavaScript process that called it, and it gets it and keeps running in JavaScript. So everything on the client is HTML and JavaScript. And I can run that server. I can run an on-prem server, web server. I can run a cloud server, a virtual machine somewhere, yeah. uh, and I can do any of that, right? Yeah. So Netscape, even though going out of business or rather being bought by AOL and being mitigated to nothing, they kind of won this war in the long run, didn't they? Ideologically, at least. Um, the vision that they had for this cloud-enabled future yeah, look at the Internet of Things. There's they're pushing internet-enabled, you know, refrigerators, toasters, microwaves, washing machines. I mean, there's cars that have internet connections in them, it, and all of it doesn't go with, you know, all that communication doesn't happen through dedicated applications. A lot of the communications just happen JavaScript, you know, AJAX, you know, just a simple request to a web server somewhere, and they do it over HTML. HTML5. Uh, I think we're we're saying has won this war. Browser plugins are starting to mm-hmm. go away and and should. But is this like net neutrality where we're going to end up right back here again? Well, here's the problem: if if we didn't have net neutrality and you couldn't get to that server, uh, how well would the Facebook app or web page on your phone work if you couldn't get to the server? We'd be back, you know, mid '90s or before where. Uh, Actually, before where you know, how much do you actually do on your phone versus how much does your phone do through the cloud? Yeah, so HTML5 seems to have one. Any closing arguments you want on this? Anything you'd like to pitch? Anything you'd like to promote on uh, using HTML5 or any certain technologies? Well, if you still have plugins, you're most likely going to open vulnerabilities to be hacked and might wonder why your browser keeps crashing. Uh, It's been a good segment. Thank you. You're welcome. Join us next week for a conversation about computer ecosystems from Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Chase Raz will introduce a new co-host for Multi-New Media, Christopher Woodward, to help with the discussion. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.